You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Well, what a beautiful passage of celebration on a beautiful Sunday of celebration. It's good to be together in God's word together. Uh, It is fitting that we are ending our series in Romans chapter 5 through chapter 8 right after Thanksgiving because these chapters have shown us that we have much to be thankful for in, in Christ. Jesus saves us in every way that a person can be saved. And Paul has detailed every aspect of our salvation in these four chapters that we've been looking at this fall. He's detailed our justification which is salvation past. He's detailed our sanctification, which is going on right now, salvation present. And he's detailed our glorification, which is salvation future. And so what is there left to say that hasn't already been said about all the benefits and all the blessings that we have in Christ? That's actually what Paul asked in verse 31. If you look at verse 31, he says, what then shall we say to these things? In other words, in, everything, in light of everything we've already talked about regarding our salvation, what else can we add, as one translation puts it? What, what more can we say? But Paul can't help himself. He's like, well, I can say some more. I have to say some more because I wanna make sure you've got it. I wanna make sure that you're convinced that God has you in Christ, that your standing with God could not be more firm than it is, that your relationship with God could not be any more secure than it is. And so in verses 31 through 39, he launches into his beautiful conclusion to this section of Romans. These verses are characterized by soaring rhetoric that grow in intensity. It just keeps building and building and building toward a crescendo. I was talking to my wife about this passage and she said, it's kind of like that song, We Are the Champions by Queen. And I was like, hey, anytime my wife wants to talk about classic rock, I'm in. You know the song, Dolly Parton sang it the other day at the Cowboy game, right? We Are the Champions just keeps building and building toward a crescendo to the point where you have to sing along. You're pumping your fist. You're like, yeah, we are the champions, my friends. You sing it. Except this text doesn't say we're the champions. It says we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul's rhetorical method in this passage is to ask four who questions. You see them there in the text. Verse 31, who can be against us? Verse 33, who will bring any charge against us? Verse 34, who is to condemn us? Verse 35, who will separate us? And the implied answer to each of those four questions is nobody. Nobody can come between us and God. Nothing could ever break up that relationship. We are more than conquerors. Not because we're so awesome and faithful and strong, but because of the awesome and faithful and strong one who loves us. Even though this world brings us all kinds of difficulty, 
and doubt and trials and suffering into our lives. We're secure. We are totally secure in Christ. That's what this passage is about. And that's hard for us to believe sometimes. Like we struggle to believe that that kind of relational security is possible because we live in a world where relationships are constantly broken apart by things like death or divorce or disillusionment or even just drift sometimes causes relationships to end. We live in a world where relationships are torn apart by sin and circumstances. We live in a world where even the most permanent relationships are impermanent. And so we struggle to believe that an unshakable, unbreakable, totally secure relationship is even possible. Which is why Paul wraps up Romans 5 through 8 with the strongest language he can use to convince us that we are totally secure in Christ. He doesn't want us just to believe in the security of our relationship with God. He wants us to feel it and revel in it and rest in it. We are totally secure in Christ. This text, I think, tells us three things about our security. First, we're secure because God is for us. God is for us. Look at verse 31, Romans 8, verse 31. If you don't have a Bible and you wanna turn there, there's some Bibles in front of you there. It's on page 888 in those Bibles. Romans 8, verse 31 What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? God is for us. I think we have to let that sink in to who we are. Like that God is for you. He's not against you, which means God is your friend. He's your advocate. He's in your corner. He's on your side. Is there any greater truth that we could ponder when we're in need of courage and confidence in life. Philip Melanchthon was one of Martin Luther's good friends who courageously stood with Luther against the world. Contramundum, against the world. And it's said that when Melanchthon was dying, he had his pastor come and read the Bible to him. And when the pastor read Romans 8.31, one of Melanchthon's life verses, Melanchthon said, read it again, read it again. And the pastor read it again. If God is for us, who can be against us? And Melanchthon cried out, that's it, that's it. See, even though it felt like the world had been against him, even though death was at his door, it didn't matter. It didn't matter because God was for him. Now, if Paul in verse 31 had simply asked the question, who can be against us? Then the answer to the question would have been a little more dicey, wouldn't it? Because, because there's all sorts of things in life that can be against us. Satan is against us. Death is against us. Indwelling sin is against us, as we saw in this passage, or these passages earlier. The world can be against us. Friends and family can be against us. We can even be against ourselves sometimes. So Paul is not denying that we have adversaries in life. He's just saying that if God is for us, then it doesn't matter who the adversary is. If God's our friend, it doesn't matter who the enemy is. If God is behind us, it doesn't matter what we face in front of us. I remember one day when I was in second grade, 
some bigger kids on the street were messing with me. There were three of them and there was one of me and they were all older than me and they were all bigger than me. And one of them took my bike, which is, you just don't do that to a little kid. He took my bike and he rolled it down this huge hill into the woods, into this creek. And so my bike is just laying there in the creek, in the water. And I'm crying and screaming and yelling and bowing up on these kids and saying, go get my bike, go get my bike. And all of a sudden, to my surprise, the biggest kid went and got my bike and he brought it to me. And I was like, that's right. You better do what I say. And then I noticed that the kids were looking past me. They were looking beyond me. And I turned around and my dad was standing right behind me. (laughs) My dad had my back. If my dad was for me, it didn't matter who was against me. And over the years since that time, my dad has shown me in all sorts of ways that he is for me. He's for me. The way he checks on me, the way he gives to me, the way he supports who I am and what I do in life. Sometimes I'll get a voicemail or a text message and it'll be like this. Todd, mom and I just listened to your latest sermon this morning. That's the best sermon on Romans I've ever heard. Now, I know that's not true. (laughs) I know it's not true. It doesn't matter though. I know my God, or I know my dad is for me. And even for a 55 year old man, that makes all the difference. There's tremendous power in someone being for you. And if that person is God, it's life changing power. That's what this is saying. How do we know God is for us? Look at verse 32. Here's how you know. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The clearest and most profound demonstration of God being for us is that he gave up his son for us. How do you know God is for you? You look to the cross. If God gave his own son for you, won't he now give you all things? Paul is arguing from the greater to the lesser here, which he's already done in Romans chapter five when he was talking about the cross. In other words, if God has already done the hard part on the cross, then won't he do the easy part? Take care of you? Like if God has not withheld his son from you, then why would he withhold anything else that you need for life and godliness? I remember the story from a couple of years ago when when some teachers pitched in to buy a new car for the school custodian because he didn't have a car and he'd walk to work every day, two miles both ways, so they bought him a car. When they gave him that car, can you imagine if they had said to him, here's the keys, but the gas tank is empty. Get your own gas, man. (laughs) That'd be crazy. They'd already done the hard part. They researched the car, they found the car, they raised money for the car, they bought the car. Wouldn't they fill it up so he could go where he needed to go? This is saying that God gave up his son for us. That's the hard part. Won't he now graciously give us all things? And listen, the all things is the easy part for God. That's no problem for God, the all things. It's no big deal for him. And when Paul says all things, he doesn't mean God will give us everything we ever dreamed of. 
God gave up his own son for you. Won't he now give you a beach house? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe not. When he says all things, he's saying that God will give you everything necessary to bring you to completion. God will give you everything necessary to conform you to the image of his son. He'll give you all the material and spiritual blessings that you need to live life to the glory of God. He's got you. He's with you. He's for you. One pastor says, God doesn't redeem you to leave you. He redeems you and then he stays with you, protecting you against adversaries and providing what you need for life in Christ. We are totally secure in Christ because God is for us. But secondly, we're secure because God justifies us. Look at verse 33. We're secure because God justifies us. Verse 33. Here's the second who question. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect. Crickets. It's God who justifies. Verse 34, the third who question, who is to condemn us? Again, crickets, nobody. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. More than that, who's at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. These verses bring us into a courtroom. There's a, we got a legal situation on our hands. In verse 33 ask, who will bring a charge against God's elect? In other words, who will accuse us? And we know that we have lots of accusers in life. The world and the flesh and the devil are all hurling accusations at us bringing charges against us, pointing a finger at us, pointing out our faults, pointing out our sins, trying to condemn us. But Paul actually answers his own question when he calls us God's elect. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? That title, God's elect, actually answers the question. Because remember back in verses 29 and 30 of Romans 8, Paul already told us the destiny of the elect. Listen to Romans 8, 29. Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. And those whom he predestined, he also called to himself. And those whom he called, he also justified. He's already done it. He justified us. And those whom he justified, he also glorified, meaning he will complete it. Verse 33 says, it is God who justifies. God is the one who declares us righteous and he's already done it. The judge has already rendered judgment for those of us who are in Christ. And who's gonna rule against the judge? And the implied answer is nobody. Like any accusation against us just bounces off of us and it falls to the ground. It's powerless. So verse 34 asks the question, who is to condemn us? And the answer again is nobody. Why? Because verse 34 also says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. Jesus already died for the sins that would have condemned us. He already paid for those sins. And so to convict us of those same sins would be unjust. It would be unjust because they've already been paid for. But more than that, 
Verse 34 also says that Jesus was raised from the dead. And more than that, look what it says. He's now at the right hand of God interceding for us. What a blessed, comforting thought. I can't imagine a more comforting thought that Jesus is right now interceding for us. Robert Murray McChain said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I wouldn't fear a million enemies. Isn't that true? If we could hear Jesus right out here praying for us by name, we wouldn't fear any enemy in the world. We wouldn't fear a thing. And then McShane says, yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for us right now. He's praying for us. But guess what? He's doing more than just praying. He's interceding as our advocate, as our defense attorney. He's hammering away in the courtroom of God's judgment before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me, meaning forever and ever and ever, Jesus is pleading on our behalf. And I don't mean he's just trying to get us off the hook. He's not just asking God to go easy on us or go soft on sin. He's not like, Father, I know Todd is pretty flaky. <laughs> I know he blew it again, but I, you know he's a pretty good guy. He'll probably figure it out. He'll do better next time. Would you please let him off the hook? See, Jesus is not building the case for our acquittal based on our reliability or our record. That'd be a pretty flimsy case. Jesus, our advocate, brings an airtight case. He says, Father, I have personally poured out my blood to pay the penalty for their sins. There's nothing left for them to pay. I've already paid it. There's nothing left for them to prove. There's nothing left for them to do to justify themselves. I've already justified them. First John chapter two. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. He is the satisfaction for our sins. So case closed. Case closed. There's no condemnation. We're justified. Always and forever. Hebrews 7 verse 25 says that Jesus always lives to make intercession for us as our advocate. And guess what? The verdict always reads justified. Justified. That's good news. It's such good news because there are so many courts in life where we're trying to prove ourselves. We're always trying to justify ourselves. There's the court of public opinion where we just want to be liked. We just want to be accepted. There's the court of our peers where we just want to measure up or we just want to keep up. There's the court of self-assessment where we're trying to prove ourselves to ourselves. And sometimes in these courts, we don't hear affirmation. We hear accusation, even from ourselves. We don't hear commendation, we hear condemnation. But through Christ, this is saying that we are fully accepted in the only court that matters, the throne room of God. We look up and see our advocate there, our great high priest, and he's not condemning us. He's interceding for us. He's saying, I'm for you. And if I'm for you, then not even you can stand against you. It's great news. We don't have to justify ourselves because we're already justified. Our relationship with God is secure against any accusation, any charge. 
we're totally secure in Christ because God is for us, because God justifies us, and finally, we're secure because God loves us. God loves us. And nothing can ever change that. Nothing can change the fact that God loves us. In verse 35, we come to the final who question that Paul asks. And Paul just kind of takes us up to the top of the mountain because he wants us to get a glimpse into the security of our relationship with God. He wants to get a God's eye view of God's love for us. Look at verse 35. Romans 8, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Like who can cut you off from God's love? Who can break up the union you have with Jesus so that the spirit of God no longer dwells in you? And the answer is nobody. But for the sake of argument, Paul lists some potential threats to our relationship with God, some potential separators. Look again at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, trouble in our life? Well, no. What about distress, hardship in our life? Will that separate us? No. Persecution, being persecuted for our faith, will that separate us? No. What about famine or nakedness, like not having enough food, not having enough clothing? No. What about danger or sword? In other words, the risk of death or the actual experience of death. Surely those things could separate you from the love of God. And the answer is no, no, they can't. So you see the invincibility of our relationship with Christ. Like you can take away my safety, you can take away my freedom, my comfort, my shelter, my food, my clothing, my dignity, and even my life, but you can't take away God's love from me. You can't. Is Paul saying that if we follow Jesus, life won't be hard? No, he's saying it will be hard. Life is difficult, life can be brutal. And becoming a Christian doesn't magically deliver you from that. In fact, being a Christian might be the very thing that brings difficulty into your life or trouble into your life. This is nothing new to Paul, it's not surprising to Paul, which is why he quotes Psalm 44 here. Look at verse 36. It's a quote from Psalm 44. Verse 36, as it is written, for your sake, God, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In Psalm 44, God's people are crying out to him because they are being persecuted even though they've been faithful to him. Right? They haven't forgotten God, they haven't worshiped other gods. They're suffering actually because of their loyalty to God. Right? They're suffering for his name's sake, they're, they're being slaughtered like sheep, it, it says. But I want you to check out the promise in verse 37. The sheep who are being slaughtered actually become conquerors. Verse 37, no, in all these things, in all these difficult things that, the, the, that life brings us, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, I think Paul makes up a word here because this is the only place in the Bible that this word is found, this word more than conquerors. It's actually just one word. Uh, what Paul does is he combines two words that we're familiar with, the word hyper and the word Nike, like the shoes. Right? We know that hyper means excess, it means over and above, and Nike was the Greek goddess of 
victory. And he combines them uh, together. And what he's basically saying here is in all the difficult things that life can throw your way, you are hyper-victorious. You're Nike to the max. (laughs) Maximum victory, right? You're you're not just a little bit victorious. You're more than victorious. How? How? Through him who loved us, through him who suffered for us, then overcame that suffering in his resurrection. Our sufferings can never separate us from the love of God because we're joined to the one who overcame suffering. We're joined to the conqueror. Paul is not saying, hey, God loves you, so put on a smiley face and pretend that life's not hard. Like following Jesus is just like bunnies and puppies and hot chocolate, journaling. There's nothing wrong with journaling. (laughs) He's not calling us to have a syrupy, sentimental view of God's love here that ignores the difficulties of life, right? Because the bad things in life truly are bad. They're not just an illusion of bad, they're bad. Like cancer is bad. Persecution is bad. Poverty is bad. Depression is bad. Injustice is bad. The love of God is not a vaccination that makes us immune to those things. The the love of God is our pathway through those things. The certainty of God's love for me enables me to walk through anything and everything that comes my way because his love ultimately wins. And so Paul finishes this passage with a flourish Look at verses 38 and 39. I love this. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says, I am sure, I'm convinced, you can't talk me out of this. I'm so convinced. And then he scours the universe one last time to see if there's anything anywhere that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Look how comprehensive his list is. He's like, can death or life separate us from the love of God? Well, no. Nothing existential can separate us from God's love. Nothing dealing with our human existence, whether in our death or in our life, can separate us from God's love. It's like, what about angels or rulers or powers? And the answer is, well, no. Nothing supernatural or superhuman can separate us from God's love. Neither angels nor demons nor anyone who has power at all. What about things present or things to come? Well, no, nothing temporal can separate us from the love of God. Nothing past, nothing present, nothing future. What about height or depth? Can those separate us from the love of God? And the answer is no, nothing spatial can separate us from God's love. You can go to the highest heavens or the lowest hell. Nothing can rip you apart from God's love. And just in case Paul left anything out, he says, nor anything else in all creation. In other words, there's nothing and no one anywhere that can separate you from God's love, not even you. Not even your own choices, not even your own sin. If you are in Christ, you can't separate yourself from God's love. 
Scotty Smith says, your most irritated, impatient, uncaring self did not separate you from God's love today. It made you a target of his love. Because God's love pursues sinners. That's the promise of the gospel. Through Jesus, God is holding onto you securely. He's for you, he justifies you, and he loves you. You couldn't be any more secure in Christ. And that kind of security is only found in one place. You you see where it's found in the last five words of our text. Look at the last five words in verse 39. This is where the security is found. In Christ Jesus our Lord. In Christ Jesus, our master, which is what the word Lord means. In Christ Jesus, our king. Like, do you believe in Jesus as king? That he is God who came in the flesh, who lived a perfect life, who died for our sins, who was raised from the dead, who ascended to the right hand of the Father and is now interceding for us and will one day come again to reign on earth as king. Do you believe in Jesus in that way, that he's Lord of lords, that he's king of kings? If you believe in him in that way, then you are totally secure in your relationship with God. Nothing can shake it. Right? You have the unshakable, unbreakable love of God. That gift of love is, is just received by faith, by trusting in him. And when you receive it, it can never be taken away by anyone or anything, ever, ever. Praise the Lord. Let's thank him. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.